Hello and welcome to episode 142 of NCP. My name is David, and we'll be the NCP crew. Richard. Episode 142. I just like the way you said that. Thank you. Luke. First law of nerd culturalytics. The critic is always right. Law 2. See law 1. Law 3. The first two laws still apply. I would have thought that the first law would be Luke is always right. I am the critic. No, you're the world's harshest critic. We're all critics. Law zero. <laughs> the harshest critic shall be known as the critic in these laws. <laughs> nice. Nice of me to You've obviously, obviously done some coding in your life. I like it. Hey, Crystal. Hello, everybody. Hello. hello. Why, hello, Crystal. It's very good to have you on the show. I'm wearing my monocle today. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Cool. So for this episode, we're actually uh, we're continuing what we did uh, a couple of episodes back with our group thing. There's so much group love that I thought for our dust jacket, we'll have a group dust jacket. We're starting a nerdy commune, <laughs> <laughs> and also because it ties into because this is our uh, our traditional anniversary episode. So just on that nerdy con- commune, does that mean we're called John Jonestown Massacre? Ooh, Ooh, let's, let's move on. That's what <laughs> um, you did there. So we continue the edition of and uh, of our of anniversary uh, dust jackets, and so our dust jackets will be Asimov books um, because he was the master of science fiction for a reason. Nobody disagrees. Good. No. Moving on. <laughs> awesome. Even Luke's not going to say you're wrong there. Cool. So uh, so for this group, we're actually going to do a group dust jacket, and uh, Richard will take over from that in a second. So we'll be doing uh, Foundations book four and five because we have already done one, two, and three. In fact, our very first episode was when we did 1, 2, and 3. How's that for awesome? There you go. It's all come full circle. Absolutely. I like it. And we're also doing our top five, and uh, sort of continuing the theme, I think, that our top five robots, fictional robots, not, not real robots. Ah, that eliminates Electro from my list then. <laughs> top five fictional robots. What about Asimo? Asimo? It's actually not that's what, for Asimov. That's what I was just about to say. I, I just, please, nobody have Asimo on their list, because seriously. I want to dance with Joe. Hopeless. And uh, that's it for the show. So let's move on to our group dust oh, jacket. Wait, wait, wait. He's, a, he's, a, he's at the height of technology. He can run. Don't care. <laughs> it just looks so lame. It's cute. Group dust jacket. Take it away, Richo. In 1982, more than 30 years after the publication of the original Foundation books, um, Asimov made the decision to actually return to this world. Apparently there were two things uh, that led to that decision. One was um, a lot of pressure by fans and editors who were, you know, really wanted to see how the Foundation story would continue because he'd only covered the first uh, few hundred years of the thousand-year Harry Seldon plan. But also, according to Asimov himself, um, because the uh, publishers offered him bucket loads of money like it was just like here let's just roll the truck of money up and dump it on your front door please write more foundation did he actually say that um yeah he said they 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 amount of money they offered him was substantial and that's why he chose to write these books which they then which they didn't miss because um it foundation z then spent 25 weeks on the new york times bestseller list so and and was in fact the first asimov book to make that list i appreciate his honesty yeah i did it for the dollars yeah 
It was after 262 books. He finally got one onto the New York bestsellers wow. list. Well, not, he did do it for the dollars, but then he put his all into it. He did. Yeah, I mean, it's, still, and, it's still awesome as, they, as all of his books are, but, it's, and, it's, and, but the fact that he was honest enough to say, yeah, I've got bills yeah. to pay. Well, obviously, you know, and, and it wasn't just the commercial success as well. It was also a huge critical success and won him a yeah. Hugo Award. Good. Um, not that that really matters anymore, the Hugo Awards. No, but um, yeah, back, <laughs> back then, then it did. And given that the given that they the original Foundation trilogy actually won this award that they just kind of just like one off award for the greatest series of all time. It's pretty good. It's nice to see that uh, Foundation's Edge um, won the Hugo again, and it was also nominated for um, the Nebula Award, but I uh, didn't actually win that award. Um, but, but what did you say? It was nominated for the Nebula. I thought he said I didn't actually win that award. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't won a Nebula award because you know I haven't actually published a science fiction novel. No, no, but you think they'd give me one anyway for my reviews? I should get the Nebula just, award for that, best reviewer. Not just that you didn't win the Nebula award for writing Foundation's Edge. So <laughs> yeah, that is true. What was I thinking? <laughs> Sorry, travesty of justice. Sorry, that's all right. My mind's not functioning. So Foundation's Edge is set five hundred years after the establishment of the Foundation and Harry Selden's plan. As per the end of book three, uh, the first foundation has actually theoretically won out over the second foundation. However, the second foundation still exists and is in hiding on the planet Trantor. It's not taking it lying down. That's right. And the book opens up with uh, more of the revelations of the Selden plan. There's yet another viewing of of a Harry Selden hologram. But what we find out is that the Selden plan is just running smoothly in fact too smoothly because it's 500 years later and it even despite all of the influence of the mule that we see in the previous books which almost completely derails um the plan um things are just running perfectly now um which leads golan trevise our lead character i'd actually pronounce it trevise trevise either way golan's a good name though yeah um it leads leads golan to suspect that um Maybe there's there's something more going on here. He he believes that the plan is being heavily influenced by an outside source, and he suspects God. No, the second foundation. <laughs> ah, God takes a backseat. The second yeah. foundation. <laughs> He's like, I'm I'm tired. Let the second foundation pull it up. Unfortunately, Golan is also uh, embroiled in a bit of political turmoil at this point in relation to. Um, the, the council and mayorship of uh, Terminus, the first foundation's uh, seat of power. In order to get out of that, the mayor of Terminus, um, who arrests him, um, actually uh, agrees to let him go so long as he goes out and looks for the second foundation because she's actually convinced that they exist as well. He's then t- given an awesome ship and teamed up with Yanov Pallarat, who is an historian, so that they can go out to look for the Second Foundation, but under the cover of actually looking for Earth. At the same time, like running parallel with this story, is the story of Stor Genderbal, um, who is um, on the Speaker's Council of the Second Foundation. And he's also, honestly, in a rather interesting political situation in that regard. But um, he's also convinced that there is um, somebody influencing the Selden plan. But, of course, he's part of the Second Foundation, so he clearly realises that it's not them. Um, but he puts forward the idea of basically anti-mules, is what he calls them. 
like people who are like the mule, but instead of trying to destroy the Seldon plan and take over for themselves, they're the ones actually controlling the plan and guiding it and trying to make sure it occurs. So he also then sets out on a mission um, to find these people. Um, and the two stories run parallel until they eventually uh, collide with the discovery of a planet called Gaia. Doesn't he also set up on the mission with a female companion? He does indeed. I can't remember her name. Her name is uh, Suranovi. There you go. Uh, Suri. Yeah. Suri, Suri, yeah. She is actually one of the, um, I guess you call them the locals of Trantor. She's uh, yeah. part of the farming community. Yeah, I The simple folk. I also saw that community as being sort of almost Amish yeah. in its, um, I'd go in its approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, just a couple of brief thoughts and then I'll throw it open to, to the rest of the room. When I, when I read the first Foundation series, I was absolutely blown away. I just, I had no idea of what to expect. I didn't know what the story was. I, I went in cold. Um, and yeah, it just stunned me how good those books were. Um, this series was a little bit different. Um, obviously, being familiar with the world, um, I had a certain expectation. And so it was more like, um, you know, catching up with old friends, revisiting the Foundation world in this book. Um but this does differ a little bit from the uh, structure of the old books in that uh, the original Foundation series consists of a series of short stories, um, whereas this is a single novel. Yeah, with one character or group of characters being the focus throughout. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't jump forward across multiple uh, years or even centuries like the previous books okay. does. It is all focused on the one time. It gives you more of a chance to really sink your teeth into the story and the characters. I think people probably go in two different ways. You either like the first ones better or you like the latter ones better. I prefer the, the latter books. But um, would not probably get as much enjoyment out of them if I hadn't read the first books. So. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is kind of essential, I think, to know, to have read the first books because this is literally dealing with the fallout from the mule, the Seldon plan, a lot of the stuff that's established. Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't be trying to read this cold at all. Um, yeah. in, sorry, in spite of Asimov's claim that you know the novels that these novels are all self-contained, they're really not. You do have to have a bit of an understanding, and not just from the forward, that, or the introduction that he puts at the start, the prologue, mm-hmm. um, sort of an understanding about the minutiae and the detail of the Foundation universe for it. Did he actually say I that? Did he actually say he could read four and not worry about reading one three? He, he, say, he says in the in the in the afterword that you know they are designed to be standalone novels. Hmm. Um, I think you could, but that would um, you would be sort of wanting to go back and read the others afterwards if you did. That yeah, that, but the, the they're not quite as standalone as he might. Want them to I don't think no. they are at all. No, I, I've actually got to agree with Dave here. I think it's absolutely <laughs> essential that you've read the first three books. Um, yeah, especially I uh, like it, the Seldon plan. Like it's it's important to know what that is, but certainly the mule and mm. the entire situation that happens with the mule. Um, even though that's a, a couple of hundred, this book is set a couple of hundred years after that. Mm. There is still this sort of pervading sense that, of, of what the mule did, and that so completely influences everything that's happening in this book. Even 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 you know so far removed from the event itself, I think it's important to to have read that and to have understood what occurs there in detail in order for this book to really... I think it's it's helpful to have read that, but I don't think... I still think you could read the whole book and um, understand the whole book. You may not get all the little nuances. But as as such a nuanced writer... Mm. um, Yeah, but that would just encourage... I I don't think anyone who had picked it up cold, not realising it's part of the series, would not 
would not get it. I think he, they'd want to go back and read the rest of the series. Yeah. No, fair enough. Cool. Fair enough. Look, it is, um, as we say, it is steeped in foundation law, but it starts to bring other elements into the into it as well. The What I find interesting is there's a very different, um, I guess, a different philosophy. I mean, we are talking about a writer who is 32 years older than he was when he wrote those. Actually, probably even older because the, originally they were written as short stories mm. before that. So let's say 40, 40 years older than he is. And, um, and you can see that especially in um, the discovery of Gaia and the nature of what Gaia is and how Gaia works and the philosophy that's espoused by Gaia mm. um, as a contrast to the, the differing philosophies of the two foundations as well. Um, yes, he's been paying attention to world events previously, like bringing Gaia theory into the foundation world. Yeah. Universe. Yeah. Mm. Um, Which is what I see, I see Gaia as, you know, him just trying to bring in the theory that was passed in, in the 1970s about the sort of more natural world having a, um, a life force of its own into, you know, the Foundation universe. He sort of delves into the way Gaia works mm. and, and uh, as opposed to how the way the rest of the universe works. And mm. it's sort of sort of debating it without really, de- you know, detracting from the story. Mm. Mm. Um, I actually think the Gaia sequence is probably one of the more interesting elements to um, Foundation's Edge. Um, I've, if I've got a, f- a problem with it, I, two, two things that I have is that I do feel that it's a little overwritten, particularly that when um, uh, Trevise and Prolet start their journey, the conversation that they have, whilst you kind of expect them to have it, the way they have it feels a bit unnatural. It's sort of like a, well, now I want you to tell me what is Earth? And it's like they're reading from a script. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a natural attempt by the two men to bond. It feels Asimov's dialogue's a bit like that. His dialogue yeah. seems to be stuck in the nineteen forties, which I think is an endearing quality. Actually, uh, it, it and, and that and that I've got not necessarily a problem with. It's just that sometimes it does come across as being a bit didactic rather than mm. um, free flowing. Which brings a point. Going back to a point that Crystal made earlier. Um, I actually, I found that I prefer the structure of the original books, the, the, the series of short stories where, where his writing was, yeah, was precise because it had to be precise and everything. And, and whilst I did like the sort of more philosophical aspects of, that are espoused in Foundation's Edge, mm. I, I do agree with what Luke was saying a bit in that I, I feel there were certain sections which probably meandered a little bit for me, whereas had, had, he, had he continued in the short story vein it might have made it a little bit tighter and more concise in, in its writing. Those, those, those passages of, of discussion and dialogue and, and philosophical argument and thing are actually interesting. Don't get me wrong. I, I was fascinated by the discussions that were being put forward, but I just found that at times it was, um, it, it, it was, it was at the expense of progressing the plot and the story a little that bit. Seems, that goes uh, back to the thing we were talking about two episodes ago, episodes ago about that you guys needing everything to be concise and cutting out anything that's not essential yeah. to the story. There, there, not, there, uh, there are times when it's it's okay to meander a bit. I'm not talking mm. about cutting things that aren't necessary. I'm talking about the actual way that he actually presents it. And it's, you know, like I said, it actually feels... Yeah, under, he is talking about that. Yeah. My problem there is that some of the arguments that are put forward mm. um, are the same arguments repeated a couple of times with just little bits added, which, which to me isn't really, you know, really progressing the, the story or the characters when they're, when they're just talking about the same thing again. Um, and some of it, as, as Luke said, some of it seems a little bit unnatural, I suppose. Mm. Um, 
Which is not to say that I didn't enjoy this book because I, I obviously I did. But yeah, I, I do I do agree with Luke's point though. Like, yeah, I, I actually think Asimov's hit his stride in these t- two books. Um, um, he, he's he's at his peak here, and I think the books very well crafted. Um, I was when I read these books. I think it must be about ten years ago now. I was just just like, they were page turners for me. And I just I could not. I can't wait to talk yeah. about the next one. Actually, I just, <laughs> it's just I really got right into the story. I think Pell is a wonderful avuncular character. He's probably my yeah. favourite character in the book, and he's he's written so well. And even I do agree with you. Sometimes the dialogue is a bit clunky. But, but that works coming from Pell because he's that kind of character. Yeah, his kind of meandering off in, in, in subjects is actually yeah. really endearing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great, actually, you see that, especially in Foundation and Earth, actually, where um, they keep having to actually pulling back onto topic, yeah. which is quite a nice touch. Yeah. Um, there is one thing, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we discuss Foundation and Earth, but um, what you also see in Foundation's Edge is the introduction of elements from other Asimov books, most specifically from the robot stories. Um, yeah, that's what I was yeah. alluding to, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and, and honestly, I, I liked that in um, Foundation's Edge. The shared universe. Yeah, and, and I love this. I love the shared universe um, approach, and um, there's, only, there's only hints of it here, but I liked that. It, it actually got me quite... Quite excited because I, you know, I do love the robot stories that I've read, and and to see the robots coming into Foundation, I'm like, yeah, you know, that's kind of cool. <laughs> it is kind of cool. Which then brings us, of course, to uh, book five of Foundation, which is uh, conclusion of the saga. Kind of, <laughs> not not exactly. <laughs> but, there, is, um, there is another book after that, but it sort of goes back to the. There are two: Prelude to Foundation and For the Foundation. Oh well, I didn't count Prelude because I read mm. Prelude first. So did I. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's cool. So yeah. as, as as we have the, the people at the time wouldn't have been able to do that, but yeah. we were actually we were able to go because I did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Well, it's called Prelude, so we must go first. Actually, I didn't really realize that it was. It was which I think added to my enjoyment of the first book. Yeah. In, yeah. Interestingly, um, just before we do move on to Foundation and Earth, apparently um, Asimov had planned to write more Foundation books after Foundation and Earth. Well, but he just the, he just wasn't, the problem was he wasn't quite sure where to actually go next, and apparently that's why he wrote the prequels instead. I don't know whether it was I, I want to write these prequels or whether it was maybe I write these prequels and I'll get an idea then of where I do want to take the story. But gotcha. yeah, so that that's how the prequels came about. Um, so let's, let's talk a bit about Foundation well, and Earth. Well, actually, as a... I'm intrigued as a as a man of, who, who dislikes prequels. Did you are you cool with that decision? Well, like the, you're quite anti prequels. I'm anti prequels in the sense that my problem with most prequels, not all, but my problem with most prequels is that they don't tell me anything that I didn't get from you know reading you know or reading or watching or whatever the original yeah. you know. Um, and and that's why Either it's something you haven't figured out already, or something you didn't need to know anyway. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, having never read the Foundation prequels yet, because ah. I, I went straight into um, shame on you. Well, I went straight to Foundation. Oh, right. Like start at the beginning, you know, <laughs> with the actual yeah. publication order of the book. So I never, I haven't read gotcha. Forward or Prequel yet. What's it? Forward Foundation Prelude. No, prelude? So that's, that's where yeah. that's where my ignorance uh, served served me well because I actually thought it was the first book. Mm. Yeah. Well, forward, so like, to, forward <laughs> to Foundation is not really a prequel. It's, it's 
it's set just before and then during. Yeah. It's the kind first of a story of... on its own, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I had, you know, first of all, I talked to basically everybody in this room about it, especially to Crystal and Luke. Mm. Um, so they, they'd already informed me that the prequels actually came, were written after. So I just cool. went straight to Foundation. Anyway, Foundation and Earth uh, was written four years, or published four years after um, Foundation's Edge in 1986. It is literally a continuation of Foundation's Edge. There is no time between Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth. There's no massive jump like there is in, in all the other books. It is like, we're on Gaia and started from Foundation and Earth. We're on Gaia, ready to leave. Foundation and Earth, basically, due to the events that happen in Foundation's Edge, um, Travise makes a, a, like a, a galaxy-altering decision um, at the end of Foundation's Edge. And he's not really sure that he's made the right decision. And he wants to understand in his own mind why he's made this decision. He brought back Disco? That's all right. <laughs> so, so he decides then that what he has to do is actually find Earth. So the, the, the fake mission that, is, uh, that he, that he uh, embarks on in Foundation's Edge, he decides, no, that's actually now got to be my actual mission. I've got to find Earth. I've got to understand the origins of, of, of humanity and humanity's decision to move into the stars. And, and, um, and to do that, I need to find Earth. Fortunately, he still has Yanov Pallarat with him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's got his Earth expert. So they, they decide to, to, to leave Gaia and search for Earth. They're accompanied by a native Gaian whose name is Blissinobirella, uh, which is shortened to Bliss. All nice. Gaians use a, a single syllable uh, shortened name. Um, which is so, how Pellarat becomes Pell. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so the three of them embark on a mission, uh, which involves, you know, to to keep a long story short, involves them travelling from one planet to another, seeking out information on on Earth. That statement Um, has never been more apt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, without giving too much away, they actually do... First of all, they discover the planet of uh, a series of planets that were first settled by spaces. It's the first. Who were the absolute first uh, human colonists. And then that actually does lead them to Earth. What they discover on Earth is actually pretty awesome. Yep. But I don't want to spoil that. Um, so, Foundation and Earth is honestly less a Foundation-specific book and more an attempt... I th- by Evazimov to really link his Constant entire, mm. almost, or pretty much almost his entire body of work, yeah. or certainly his in, entire body of science fiction work, together into one shared universe. Um, mm. The hints that you get of the connections between the robot books and Foundation in um, Foundation's Edge become... In, like, on explicit, we are visiting yes, the planets that, absolutely. that Elijah Bailey visited in the yeah. previous robot novels. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. This is this is his big attempt to tie everything mm. together. Um, and in that regard, um, I think he's pretty successful. Oh, um, definitely. And did the revelation at the end is just mm. amazing. It's one of those. Did you mark out at that moment? Were you like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not entirely sure what marking out is. Marking out just means getting really excited over something that happens that yeah. maybe you didn't expect, or even that's, if you did expect, it still makes you. That's what I thought. But yeah, 
in a, yeah. in a male way. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's just say, let's just say, were, were you very excited by that? That what happens at that moment? <laughs> were you very excited? <laughs> the gentleman's way of describing. Yeah. Did, did you think it was it was a an awesome moment within the books? Yes. yes <laughs> did, you, did you do the park and recreation thing? <laughs> to anybody that's uh, an Asimov fan, I think you would kind of know where it was. Oh, I mm. certainly did. I sort of thought anticipated that moment that mm. occurs. Um, I, yeah, you kind of... But it was still awesome. As it, it gets closer, you're kind of hoping, and then yeah. when it's revealed, you're oh, yes! Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like, it's been like the one, that just to go the one moment that you've actually kind of been hanging out for if you've been reading all the yeah. all the novels. Um, I actually did, I actually prefer Foundation and Earth over Foundation's Edge. Having said that, it doesn't feel like a Foundation novel to me. It does feel like um, uh, really a wrap-up of the robot novels. Um, well, because the foundation yeah. stuff was kind of really wrapped up in the previous. I one. actually would have, I actually would have liked to have seen, you know, if he was going to another novel. Hopefully, if he was going to another novel, um, to see how Galaxia would have um, worked against um, the foundation and the second foundation, mm. and to see the problems. The problem I have with these two books in general is just, um, and that's not to say I didn't enjoy them. I do. Mm. Um, it's just that I think the scope was lost a little bit. The, the the majesty of the history of um, of the first five hundred years, the first three hundred years, which is in the first three books, mm. um, which is um, awe inspiring, is just kind of lessened a little bit. Um, what I did appreciate about Foundation and Earth, though, was attempting well, was one character attempting to discover um, uh, something secret about the universe. Mm. Um, and yes, whilst he was, whilst we were using familiar planets like Aurora, like Solaria, I actually really enjoyed the interaction that all three of them had with Bandar in particular. And I thought that was a, a fascinating insight into how Solaria has, invo- has evolved. Mm. Um, but Bandar himself was an interesting character. I also really liked Bliss. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, at one point, at the, yeah, this is at the point where Asimov can actually write female characters. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yes. forty yes. years. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, he said himself in his early stuff, he didn't put them in there because he didn't understand women. Mm. Yeah, um, <laughs> and the, the sort of the work that each started with Mayor Brano, who is a uh, you know quite a strong mm. um, female figure of authority. Yeah, it's actually continuing. But the thing I like about Bliss is that she is at once very powerful and almost terrifying in her beliefs. And then when she takes charge of um, the young girl, is almost Ripley like in her um, mm. attempts to connect and bond and form yeah. a relationship and her, and her maternal and her protectiveness, maternal yeah. which doesn't come across. Get as, away from her, you! Yeah, but it doesn't come across as a softening <laughs> of the character. She is still. Yeah. It, it just shows another side, and I really yeah. like the way she was. The one thing I also liked is about Golan Trevise's character. Um, I almost feel like. Asimov, in some sense, is a bit annoyed with the Han, with the Han Solo type archetype, <laughs> um, because there are times where Golan Trevise tries to be um, the the fourth the forthright action hero, and it goes wrong. And yeah. when he actually is successful, is when he is more of the thinking. Yeah, the thinking man. Yeah, because it's similar to what he did with Elijah Bailey when he thinks he's worked it out and then he fails spectacularly. Yeah. Yeah. but there are moments where he goes up against Bandar in an attempt to have a an attempt to have a Han Solo type fight. Yeah, and Bandar takes him to pieces and Bliss yeah. has to um, to um, pick up the pieces. Yeah. But his his um his actual strength is actually more in the other side of things in trying to look at the political scope and actually yep. piece things together. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it, and I thought Golan Trevise, in the second book, Golan Trevise as a character really actually um, stood out. Yeah. 
Um, actually, speaking of Bliss, as you were saying, I think um, a- another strength that Bliss has, um, much much like Foundation's Edge, there is a lot of um, um, philosophical debating and political debating that occurs in Foundation and Earth as well. But I think Bliss provides a stronger counterpoint to Trevise's arguments mm. um, than what we see in Foundation's Edge. Yeah. Uh, because she is so completely steeped in a philosophy that is um, different to, to his philosophy. Mm. Um, their their arguments and their counter arguments and just their relationship in general, I found really fascinating. Mm. All, all in all, I, I actually felt that uh, this was a pretty reasonably strong conclusion to the Foundation saga. In that, yes, I would have loved to have seen more books. Um, I love the Foundation universe and the robot universe and it all coming together and all that sort of stuff. Um, I would have liked to have seen then how how the the Gaian way, the Galaxia way, would impact on the Foundation and the Second Foundation, which is still in existence. Um, but at the same time, this does also bring a kind of a conclusion to the Selden plan. Like it shuts off the Selden plan and wraps it all up in, in a, you know, in a way that, that I wasn't completely unsatisfied. Um, plus, you know, the, the awesome thing that does happen at the end of this book, uh, which did have me thinking, hell yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think this wrapped up pretty well. So uh, let's get some final thoughts and some ratings. I agree with everything everybody said. Um, especially the cracking on Mars at the end bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very very cool. Um, I, I I do I do prefer the first three books. Um, yeah. And, uh, but these are worthy follow ups uh, that continue the awesomeness instead of instead of diluting the awesomeness. So yeah. It's, it's good stuff. So yeah, I give them. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'll, I'll rate them both. I'm actually going to rate them both together and it's four out of five for both as a story. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd say, for me, the, the first three are, you know, the masterpieces of science fiction that they are. And these are, you know, certainly worthy follow-ons, but don't quite capture, certainly, the scope of the first three books. So, they're, yeah. a lot of, they're a lot of fun, but they're not as fun. Hmm. Um, yeah, so four out, of, four out of five for me as well. I have to disagree. Uh, I prefer the, these ones over the first three, um, mainly because it follows... Like this, the single characters. I think the first three set up the universe quite well, but um, you don't really get to sink your teeth in, and 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 there's not a lot of character development. Um, this these books uh, explore things a bit more philosophically, and and I love how the, the planet hopping. You go to different planets, and there's a whole new. The world building is amazing. There's world yeah. different worlds and the way the worlds work and you get involved with that world and then they leave and then you find another world and this world works completely differently and it's just the the scale of the imagination is through the roof and um, given that I gave the first three five I definitely will have to give these ones five as well <laughs> I actually haven't read most of the the robot books so this book has actually got me excited to go and, and read those stories so I, I, I definitely give the book credit for, for actually doing that, for getting me all fired up and wanting to go and read the rest of the robot books. It's awesome. It didn't quite impact me, though, as uh, Dave and Luke said. It didn't quite have the, the impact on me that the original Foundation trilogy had, which just completely, completely blew me away. And actually, honestly, not just getting me excited about Asimov, but get me excited about doing the Dust Jacket reviews mm. because it was the first books that we reviewed. I was like, wow, if all the books are this good, then we're just going to have nothing but awesome times. Yeah, okay, that was kind of weird, I admit, but, you know. But when you when you start with something that good, you can't help but get excited. Um, so I definitely give this series, uh, these two books, four as well. 
And then we read The Prestige. <laughs> I was going well, to say Strangers, but that's a <laughs> What did you say, five? Uh, four. four, four, four. Yeah. Uh, that, was, uh, that was cool. Well done. Thank you. Cool. Well, was that as, as uh, following our tradition? What's our next Dust Jacket books, Richo? Our next, next Dust Jacket book from the Sci-Fi List's Top 100 list. Oh, no, these are the Top 100. These actually aren't in the Top 100. The original trilogy is ranked number two. And justifiably so. Um, Wait, what's first? It's not Battlefield Earth, is it? Ender's Game. Oh, okay, okay, I can't remember that. Yeah. <sighs> no, not, it's not Battlefield Earth. Okay. It's not Battlefield Earth. Yeah, so I, I kind of just, uh, I kind of grouped these in as far as just, you know, reading the whole Foundation story. So gotcha. it wasn't specifically that these were on the list. It was just that the Foundation books are on the list and I wanted to read these. Awesome. All right, but so the next book? Uh, so our next book is Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. All right. One, one that I know Dave's very excited about and has been hanging out for basically since we started doing uh, <laughs> Dust Jackets. Very cool. Richard Matheson. Like one of my literally gods. Yep. <laughs> um, our crew pick is Young Crystal. The, um, so I gave Luke two options. Uh, he's picked uh, the Terry Pratchett option, and we're going to do The Last Hero by Terry Pratchett, illustrated by Paul Kidby. Awesome. Now I say illustrated by because every single page is beautifully illustrated. It must have taken years. <laughs> cool. Um, Look so, forward to it. Uh, um, out of all the Terry Project works, I chose this one for Luke specifically because I thought he would get a kick out of the art, even if he's not too keen on the story. But he might also get a kick out of the nod to Conan. <laughs> cool, awesome. Let's move on with the rest of the episode, our anniversary episode, with our top five. And to tie it all into the books, it's our top five fictional robots. So first up, we've got Crystal. Okay, my top five robots came to my mind in reverse order. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> I got halfway through and realised, hang on, this is in reverse order. Okay. Um, at number five on my list is Robot from the Lost in Space TV show, a.k.a. Robbie, but I think is only referred to as Robot in the show. His official designation is Robot B9. Because yeah. he's not Robbie. No, he's not. But he looks yeah. exactly like Robbie. Close yeah, enough. Yeah, there there exactly are differences. Like, but yeah. Robbie doesn't have the flailing arm. <laughs> warning! Warning! <laughs> like re- re- really, Robot from Lost in Space is like one of those inflatable guys you see out the front of guard dealerships. Wacky waving arms inflatable too, man. That's right. <laughs> he would have he extended his arms and That's decided right. to do that. I'm sure he could. Um, well, of course he could. Coming at number four on my list is uh, Daniel Olivelaw. Who? As people will know from the Isaac Asimov novels, he is the uh, robot assigned to Elijah Bailey to investigate a murder. In the awesomeness that he is. And and then a a friendship ensues. Aww. How sweet. Number three on my list is Bender. Yay! <laughs> I'm a bended robot. <laughs> Shut up, baby. I know it. Let's <laughs> do the whole thing. Hey, Bender, I love you. Shut up, baby. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> Just because Bender's an awesome character. He's um, not an actual full name. I can't remember what it is. It's Bender, Bender Rodriguez or something. Yeah, this is Rodriguez. It's like a Mexican, name, Mexican name. Yeah. Bizarre. What about when he becomes a professional wrestler? Gender Bender. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Funny when he becomes a human, he looks strange like Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. <laughs> um, number two on my list is Crichton. 
Oh, cool. Crichton from Red Dwarf. Nice. I didn't even have Crichton. Uh, really? I didn't, even, I didn't even think about him. Yeah, so, and his vacuum attachments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was Crichton is probably the most passive-aggressive robot ever. He comes across as very obsequious and yes sir, yes sir, but he's totally, you know... Word of the day. Tell that word again. Obsequious. Wow. He steers, steers <laughs> them in the right direction often. Um and number one on my list, technically an android, but to me he looks like a robot, is Marvin the paranoid android. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we well, like to have androids. Android, I meant androids and robots. I didn't mean that, so hopefully that, you well, uh, take you, that into account. You said robots, so um, that's why I didn't put Data on the list, because he's an android. Oh, well, I apologise. He's a humanoid. I've got Data in mind. Robot, but then again... Daniel. So, so is Dan, Daniel, yeah. He's a humanoid, but he's referred to as a robot. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. Sweet. So, technically, all these, so people, Marvin. all these are referred to as robots, except for Marvin, who calls himself the paranoid android. <laughs> he has a pain in the diodes all down his left side. <laughs> Brain, Brain, the size of a planet. Size of a planet. What have got me doing? Parking cars. <laughs> Can I pick up that piece of paper? Can I pick up that piece of paper? Awesome. Well, because you the alphabetical thing to be Richard next. Okay. Um, I just want to say that uh, the aforementioned Data and uh, Marvin actually were also on my list, but I took them off because I thought other people will cover them. All right. Okay. Yeah. So my top five. Um, at number five, I have Gort from the day the Earth stood still. Cool. Just because he's not really much of a personality or anything, but I just love giant killer robots from the 1950s. Wearing giant steel diapers. Yeah, and he is just he is just an awesome, menacing-looking robot. Um, he is awesome. Along those lines, and in my category for just silliest awesome robot of all time, uh, number four, I have Mechagodzilla. That's awesome. Because Mechagodzilla is totally absurd. But if I, you could find a way to put Godzilla in every top five, you would. And that's, that's what I was saying. I love the Godzilla movies, and I love Mechagodzilla, even though in every appearance, Mechagodzilla has a completely different origin. <laughs> one point he's created by aliens, at one point he's created by, you know, top-secret government thing to create a, 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 a robot to fight Godzilla. But, like, they change his story every time, and every time he appears, it's like his first appearance. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love I love any time Godzilla goes up against Mecha Godzilla is in fact awesome. So that was number four. Um, at number three um, is Deadlock from the comic book The ABC Warriors. Nice. Um, I've talked in the past about how much I love the ABC Warriors and Nemesis the Warlock, and um, of all the characters, Deadlock, the chaos worshipping magic practitioner robot. Uh, is just brilliant. I've always loved him. Uh, yeah, ever since I first read ABC Warriors back when Dave Gibbons was drawing it. Nice. That takes me back. Uh, that was number three. Um, my number two character, also from comics, um, as discussed a couple of episodes ago when we reviewed the Avengers, is the Vision. Uh, he is my second favorite uh, Marvel character. And uh, I mean, I, I love a lot of the, the androids and robots and things that appear in comics, like, you know, Robot Man and Red Tornado and things like that. Just have a general love for those kind of characters. But the Vision is just the most well-developed and interesting and fascinating of those characters. And, uh, you know, is also married to my favorite character or was married to my favorite character of all time. So you got to love that. They're not married anymore, Dave. No, well, he's a very angry man. <laughs> well-developed is a good choice of words, given the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he's fully functional. And, oh, that's not what I meant. And, and he is awesomely, or, he is awesome in the movie too. Yeah. And I did get 
like I had an awesome moment when he actually like a mark out moment <laughs> when he, when he actually like sticks his hand through. Yeah, right at the end there. Yeah, like through one of the ultra robots. That, yeah, yeah the is like what? Yeah. And then when he uses his solar thing, although it's not, it's now the mind gym. Yeah, but when he uses gym. the solar blast as well, that, that was awesome. Um, but uh, my number one. Well, he's actually, I guess, an android rather than a robot. But my number one character, without any doubt, who we've talked about ad nauseum time and time again on this show, has to be Roy Batty from Blade Runner. Nice. He is just absolutely fascinating. He's sympathetic. He's an interesting character. There's just everything about him is amazing. Beautifully portrayed. Technically replicant is the correct term. True, but does he dream of electric sheep? That's the important <laughs> question. Well, like um, just and, and also has the you know the best monologue ever in a movie. <laughs> Um, good. Well, next up was myself. Sorry, Richard, for cutting you off. No, that's uh, okay. That's all I had to say. Okay, so as uh, as Richard, yeah, so, same with Richard. I, was, uh, I had you know certain characters on here that I knew were going to be on others. So I actually don't have Roy on mine, even though he clearly should be on that list. Uh, so at number five, I've actually got Skeets from Mr. Gold. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love Skeets. Who is uh, well, technically Skeets is an AI in a robotic body that sort of so he could then accompany Booster Gold on his on his missions, but. Um, that's good enough for him yeah. to make him a robot. And he's also he, well, he's got a robot body. Um, yeah, so he's, yeah, so he's the the wise cracking uh, uh, companion to Booster in his in his, his travels around time, and uh, he's hilarious. I love, <laughs> I love the voice they give him in the Justice League cartoon. Yeah, it just sounds exactly the way that I always it's imagined exactly Skeets would the, speak. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's why I've got Skeets instead of Robot for that yeah. very reason. Uh, number four, I've got the Terminator, specifically the T eight hundred version. Uh, which is the original film's version, uh, just because it's just such a brilliant design and concept and because he just kicks a lot of ass. So he does. There's no doubt about that. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, the T-800. Arnie. The Arnie version. The original Arnie version. So the design is basically just Arnie's physique. No, I mean that when the skin gets taken off. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> 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 the endoskeleton. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Arnie's physique as well. I mean, that's an impressive physique. <laughs> well, Arnie was the greatest bodybuilder of all time. <laughs> that's exactly right. You did it so well. It's all that uh, work on the Wheel of Pain that gave him that physique. <laughs> Wheel of Pain. Uh, number three, I've also got Bender. Funnily enough, Bender. Because Bender is just brilliant. Just my shiny middle ass. Exactly. Uh, number two, I've got Dana. Uh, Unlike everybody else who took him off, but I do have data on there, and you know we've like we've mentioned data many many times. So he's fully functional. He is fully functional. I took him off because I thought I'd leave him to the like the yeah. mega Star Trek fans is, to deal with. He's uh, one of my favorite Star Trek characters, and one of my favorite characters. And he's, he's just there's a, very rarely do they just put a foot wrong. Uh, he's yeah. and. Uh, Let's forget Nemesis, and uh, it's you know that's why, I, that's why I said very rarely. I didn't say never, um, and uh, it's just excellently portrayed and and just such a well thought out all rounded individual. He's just he's a brilliant, brilliant character. Yeah, you can him. see a lot of the Asimov influence on him too. Yeah, and a lot of the stories. And uh, number one, I put uh, I put for nostalgic reasons. I've got Optimus Prime. <laughs> Optimus Prime. I've mentioned uh, in an episode in the past where I didn't. I didn't have a father growing up, and uh, Optimus Prime was essentially the the guy who taught me life lessons. You know what I mean? So I am the man I am today because of Optimus Prime. And obviously, uh, not the Michael Bay version. No, 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 not the Michael Bay version. Although it's voiced by the same guy. Um, no, they, I'm specifically talking the '80s cartoon version. And uh, yeah, Optimus Prime will always have a have a have a place in my heart. And he looks awesome, so that's fine. Robots in disguise. And he was a cool toy too. Yeah. All right, quickly. Um, robots are amongst my favourite science fiction 
forget science fiction, just forget concepts ever. And every time I see them on TV, film, comics, books, it's an automatic must-read, must-buy. Having said, and this list was hard. I had if we had a top fifty, I still would have had fifty more on the list. So true. Getting straight into it, number five, Astro Boy, and by extension, Astro Boy's World. Yeah, um, nice. You know, it's a nice little nod to Pinocchio, but at the same time, you know, he's able to you know do Superman level uh, stuff, which is always pretty damn cool. Number four is Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet because you know he sticks to the product, he sticks to the three laws, but is also a bit of a smart aleck as well. Yeah, um, you can you, know, you can obey the three laws and be a bastard. Mm. That's yes, fine. but they're, they're, <laughs> as long as you're not harming people. Yeah, is that a bit of a Except smart aleck with your words. and you know supplies people with copious amounts of alcohol. Um, number three, um, as, as actually um, one of Crystal's mentions as well, is um, is uh, Daniel Oliver. Yeah. Um, for the reason that she stated, also because of you know things that we discover in some of the later books as well. Um, now, next to uh, just a little bit more explanation. Number two is Roderick from John Sladek's Roderick novels. No, don't, one, don't know it. No one would have heard of. Um, he's from he's from the complete. What's yeah. if you, you find editions these days called the complete Roderick? I've heard of it. I've not. Yeah. Um, so and cool. basically, he is a robot designed as a young boy, and it's about tracing his progression from being a young robot to going into being a sort of, you know, teen adult robot. Um, does his physical form change? To a certain extent it does. Wow. But one of the nice things about it is that people don't understand that he is a robot. In spite of the fact that he looks like a robot, they actually treat him as the special needs kid in the class. That that special needs kid dressing up as a robot. So they think there's a human in in the disguise somewhere. What time period is this written in? We're talking 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they think he's a human boy who's pretending to be a robot because he's mentally deficient. Yeah. But he is actually a robot. He's actually a yeah. robot. This is and, awesome. And, I'm checking this makes, out. And it, um, one of the nice things is that um, he actually questions a lot of contradiction, quite quite obvious contradictions in humanity. Yeah. Not in a, not in a I'm going to kill you all. Just in a, that doesn't make sense to me. As a, even as a child might. Yeah. Um, but everyone just dismisses them because he is. They, they do perceive him as being the special needs kid, and they don't quite understand where he's coming from. Yeah, so very it's very cool. It's very funny, and it's also very poignant as well. Yeah. Um. So I really love Roddick, but my number one choice is Adam Link from Adam from the Andrew Binder's novel. Um, Adam Link actually starts off being create. Uh, starts off going on trial for the murder of his creator. You know, that's because his creator's been found dead and he's just been created and they think that he's the one who's done it. But instead of just... So the plot to iRobot. It is. Let's rip it right off of there. No, no, no. iRobot, the Outer Limits episode, is in fact an ad- adaptation of the first part of the Adam Link book. No, but that, the, the crappy film. No. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, because Adam Link fights space aliens later on. And that... Think, yeah. Basically, think, awesome. think the plot of the Bicentennial Man, you know, a, ba- a robot starting off life as a robot and trying to become more human yeah. to the point where he develops synthetic skin and gets a mate throughout the throughout the course of the novel. Add to that, you know, being put on trial putting being put on trial for the murder of his creator and having to fight off, you know, um uh bull like looking aliens at the end in, in an attempt to save humanity to prove that he's one of them and then realizing that he's sort of a bit above them. It's it's a really nice novel and Adam Link has always stayed with me really beca- mostly because of the um the first part of the book where he is put on where he's not only he he's put on trial but his humanity is put on trial. And every single robot on trial story, I think, comes from this, including uh, a measure, de- measure of a Man from measure, Star Trek. Yeah, Measure of a Man from Star yeah. Trek, um, and including, uh, as we mentioned, um, an, an episode of The Outer Limits called iRobot, which actually does adapt um, 
the first part of the book. Cool. Um, yeah, big fan of Adam Link and just a big fan of Roberts in general, and that's my top five. Awesome. That is awesome. You're totally, you're totally right there. We're going to do a top 50. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. My, my honourable mentions list was ludicrous. Yeah, same. It is ridiculous. Uh, it's a shame we haven't got time to go through them, though. But yeah, that was great. That was awesome. You always come up with some really... I try. There's out there choices. I'm going to look that up. You always at the end of them, you always go, oh, well, there's something new I can go and look <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I haven't actually read the Adam Link books, but some of the covers I've seen for the different editions of it do look awesome. Yeah, I just, yeah. unlike Roderick, I actually have heard of Adam Link, but I've never, yeah. I've never read it. So Let's finish up with our coming soon. In cinemas May 14th, we get A Royal Night Out, which is about... <laughs> I kid you not about Elizabeth and I don't know. It's about, about two of the two of the young royals who who uh, before they have to become you know proper royalty, they go out for a night on the town and romance and shoes. So Elizabeth and her sister, or and Elizabeth is, and well, I assume, okay. I assume it's Elizabeth and Margaret. Yeah, I don't God know. Almighty. Anyway, go to hell. Hilarious. Uh, when Marnie was there, the latest uh, offering from Studio Ghibli. And, yep, uh, it just yep. looks magnificent, mm. as they all do. Is this the last film that they're doing? Should be because yeah, it's because yeah, they have, yeah, so that would be the last one, well, the last, it, last cinema release at least. Well, it does sound like you know what Maisie does. That <laughs> well, yes, but let's not go there. Um, and Mad Max Fury Road, Australia's mm. own. So a return to the Mad Max universe with Bane as Mad Max. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yes. No, <laughs> no. Well, I mean, no. not interested. No, I hope it's good. My my fear is that it's just going to be a, a remake of Mad Max Two, but not as good. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair statement. But I'm still looking forward to it because the trailer just looks mad. I'm actually look more looking forward to the Terminator film, and I'm not a Terminator fan at all. I know that's so shocking. That's that we weird. Turned, we, we we saw the, the the Terminator Genesis trailer. You turned around and you was like, I'm actually now kind of interested. I actually I'm think like, I must. Oh my God, I must be an Arnie fan because as soon as he appeared, I went, Oh, okay, and then. Well, you can't not spoil anything in the trailer. Then the younger Artie appears. So I like that. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, that's it for episode 142 of NCP. That's it from me, your host, David, and the rest of the crew. Richard. I shall now be obeying the three laws of NCP as established by Luke. At yeah. The start. I'm going to write those down. Yeah. And look. Remember law zero. It is the important law of all. <laughs> hey, Crystal. Shut up, baby. I know it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can write on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on Nerd Culture Podcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show, use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net, or search for NCPTV on YouTube, because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flames. More info at www.filmflames.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. 
Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.